It's Matthew 16, 21 through 28. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. When you've learned something, when you know something, not just something, but something amazing, something you're excited about, how quickly do you want to share it with others? My guess if you're like many, is that you want to shout it out immediately. You want to let everybody know this amazing thing. And it seems that was likely the disciples' response to the confession uh, that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Because Jesus had just said, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. What he said is, Peter, my Father, the living God, Yahweh, he's revealed this to you. I mean, do we get excited about what God reveals to us? He says, you didn't figure this out. He's revealed it to you. But just as he said, blessed are you, he also told them to tell no one. We note that at the end of that in verse 20, he says he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. And we've, we've seen Jesus do this with others. It's not uncommon that we see him heal someone as we read through the Gospels, and he tells them what? Don't tell anyone. Also, when he casts out demons or evil spirits, we see him doing what with them? Telling them to be silent. And here he tells his disciples, don't tell anyone else that he's the Christ. And so we might wonder, well, why? And likely we discover at least part of the reason for that command in our text today. Because there would come a time where he does send them out to tell people who he is, but the time is not yet. The time is not now. And we note that with those that he heals and he calls to not tell others. We note that he commands the silence that he is. Because why? Because the time is not full yet. And so with the disciples, this is huge for them to recognize who he is, and they would likely want to tell others, but Jesus, he tells them to be quiet. Tells them to not say it. Well, because why? Likely, the Jewish people, which the disciples are among, they had expectations of the Messiah. And the common expectation was that when the Messiah comes, who they've been waiting for for hundreds of years, that once the Messiah comes, everything would be set to rights quickly. That was the end. The kingdom has come. It seems that the disciples, unsurprisingly, had that same understanding, the 
apostle or the the disciples of John the Baptist had come and asked if he was the one they were to look for, if they should look for someone else. Seems that Jesus' disciples possess the same understanding. We see them time and again asking, is now the time? Even after the resurrection of Jesus, preceding his ascension, is now the time that you'll restore the kingdom? And he says, it's not for you to know that time. And so this messianic office, there was a there was a filling up of their understanding that had to take place because what they understood was what had been taught to them. But what had been taught to them, there was a lack of understanding. And Jesus was about to embark upon, over the rest of the course of his earthly ministry, to reveal this to them. What Jesus was teaching them, though, now stood at odds with everything they understood about the Messiah. Not only that, what he's saying to them would profoundly impact their friend. Because who was Jesus to them? I don't call you, sir. I call you friends, brothers. Think about this. We read this and we go, well, of course, this makes sense. And sometimes we read that separated from the text. But when we step into the text and we recognize who were these people, these were 12 men who had spent at this point a year and a half, two years following him, learning from him, serving with him, empowered by him. They'd grown close to him. And so as he says this, he's talking about not just the Messiah, but it's him, it's their friend. And how many of you, if your friend announced this, would be like, oh, that sounds great? Probably not many. Peter had just made this great confession about who Jesus was. You are the Christ. You're the Messiah, the Son of the living God. He just made that great confession. But isn't it surprising how quickly we can move from the highest of heights to arguably the lowest of lows? I mean, he's just gone from hearing from Jesus' lips, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, to what? Get behind me, Satan. Peter once again likely speaks on behalf of the disciples, even as he takes Jesus aside. And, and the result of his taking him aside is to hear a rebuke that took him likely as low as the previous blessing had taken him soaring. Isn't he so much like us? One moment God reveals something to us so wonderful. And we know it wasn't because we, it's just he's opened our eyes. And the next we find ourselves resisting the Spirit, grieving the Spirit perhaps. But there's something interesting that happens in here. Jesus, he doesn't separate himself from Peter or the rest of his disciples. Make no mistake, he speaks very clearly about the mistake that's been proclaimed. He doesn't separate himself from them. No, he then goes on to proclaim to them the path of the disciple, keeping them near and revealing to them how they and all who would follow are to walk in faithful obedience to him. This is the beginning of that walk towards Jerusalem where it says that he set his face as a flint. He starts moving towards what he came to do. And we see the turn in how Matthew writes here. He says, from that time, 
From that time, Jesus began. And we've read this phrase before. We read it back in Matthew chapter 4. Following the temptation of Christ, in Matthew 4, 17, it says that Jesus, he began to preach. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This was Jesus' message for the masses. Sounds a lot like John the Baptist. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand means that it's near. So near, it's right there. And what the masses have seen and what the masses have heard is one who teaches with an authority and a power that they haven't known. One who reaches out and sometimes he touches to heal, sometimes he speaks to heal, and sometimes he just says, get up, and they're healed. They've seen these wonderful works. They've heard this teaching. And so that's been the message for the masses. But now upon this confession of Peter that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, we read again now from that time Jesus began to show his disciples. And so now Jesus, we see him focus more right there on his disciples. That they must understand something because they are going to be the appointed messengers to go out and tell everyone how Jesus is that promised Messiah that you've looked so forward to and accomplish, has accomplished this in such a different way than we were expecting. They have to learn that. And Jesus, as he puts this forward, he reveals to them something that they didn't expect of the Messiah. This Messiah who comes conquering and to conquer, clearly he would do it in the way that we think, right? Jesus' information, Jesus' teaching to them is, is, no, that's not how it's going to come about. He's going to open up all of those promises in the Old Testament that pointed to who is that suffering servant? How would salvation be accomplished? Because they had an idea, and their idea was wrong. It needed to be corrected. That's what he begins on now. They're going to struggle with it all the way through. We're going, to, we're going to struggle with them through it as we watch them. But here we see the turn where Jesus is teaching his disciples. We see this turn towards the final trip to Jerusalem that would culminate in the fulfillment of Jesus' mission so from that time. What has happened is the disciples have rightly confessed who Jesus was, who he is. Now they would learn what that promised Messiah would do to fulfill all of the law and the prophets, because that's what was about to take place. And so Jesus says, it says, from that time, Matthew tells us, from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. What he must do. And so as you look at this, it's not an accident. It's not, he will do this, though he would. He must. What does that mean? When you must do something, what does that mean? There's no other option. It has to be done. And if it's not done, something will be lacking. So he teaches them, he shows them, this must be done. And what was the first thing that he must do? He must go to Jerusalem. In Luke 13.33, he says it this way, Nevertheless, I must go on my way today and tomorrow and the day following, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. Now, there's not an Old Testament reference for that. This is just from the word of Christ himself, that it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. That was the place where his suffering would take place. It had to be. 
And so it was. So we see that as he proclaims that, that prophecy comes very true. He must go to Jerusalem. And so he goes to Jerusalem. That's where he's heading. But it wasn't just that. He must go to Jerusalem and what? And suffer. Suffer? Suffer many things from who? And here, he says, from the elders and chief priests and scribes. And do you notice that he groups them all together as one? It says that he must suffer many things from the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes. Interesting how unified the enemies of Christ are, isn't it? He lists them as one group because that's what they're unified in. The elders who had the respect due to, the na due to their age and due to their experience. The chief priest who was the leader of all the priests and the scribes, the experts in the law, they were unified, and we mentioned this in one thing, opposition to Christ. And so it's not just that he must go to Jerusalem, he also must suffer many things at their hands. Interestingly enough, we see the unity among them. We stand in our day today knowing that Christ, before his death, would pray for what among his followers? The unity of his followers. It is a correction that the church needs to listen to that we are to stand in unity. It's to our shame that enemies of the cross would be more unified than those who are in Christ. That doesn't mean we start throwing stones at other denominations. But we recognize when denominations confess who Christ is, what he's done, and we stand together in the main things and the plain things, we rejoice in the unity that he brings through life in Christ and through the presence of his spirit. Our worship may look different, but we have to listen to the words of what and who is being confessed. And we should be Every bit is unified as those that would fight against. So he had to go to Jerusalem. He had to suffer. And he had to be killed. Not merely die. He had to be killed. And what, what's being pointed towards he, to here is that, that, that he would die. He doesn't say specifically how at this point. It's been hinted at, and it will be hinted at, that reference to the cross. But here it says, and be killed. So that suggests plotting, which we know has already been taking place. So he's going to go to Jerusalem. He's going to suffer many things from that group of people. He's going to be killed. But he doesn't leave it there. Because there's something else. He would also what? And on the third day, be raised. And when we hear that, we rejoice, don't we? Because we stand on the side of what? It's been fulfilled. It's happened. As we read this, though, sometimes we have to stop ourselves and slow down and go, okay, but here, these 12 are hearing this for the first time, and what have they just heard? They're going to go to Jerusalem where there's been, I mean, there's been messengers sent out. They've tried to find out who he is, that they've resisted him, that he's going to go there and he's going to, he's going to suffer. I don't want for my friends to suffer. And then what? And be killed. I mean, now how many of you, when you're listening to someone, a friend of yours, tell you things, and then at the end, 
there's, there's, you know, they, they, there's, that sounds horrible and horrible, but wait, but wait, but wait. And then there's something in there, but you're so distracted or so focused on what's come behind. And then they put this wonderful thing at the end. You don't even notice it. That's Jesus's disciples here, right? Did they miss that? Or did they just be like, is it just so unbelievable to them that a dead person would rise from the grave? I mean, maybe. But he says, on the third day, be raised. The wonderful thing about how that's written is that it's the divine passive. And what that indicates here in the structure is that God is the agent. He is the means of his being raised. That God the Father is going to raise his son up. And it fits with what Jesus says later on. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. It's the Father's hands who would lift that son up, raise him up again. We go, well, that's all great. But why? Why must you go to Jerusalem? Why must you suffer? Why must you be killed? And why must you be raised on the third day? Well, Psalm 49, 7 and 8 tells us truly no man can ransom another or give to God the price of his life. For the ransom of their life is costly and can never suffice. That means that as, much, as well-intentioned as you are and as good of a life, as nice of a life, as, as wonderful of a life as you live, you can't pay my penalty. You can't pay your own. We don't have that ability. We don't have that power. There's one that does. So when the why question comes up, why do you have to go and suffer and be killed? Well, why? To pay for our sins. To pay a price that we couldn't pay. And you say, well, I don't want to take any handouts. This is a handout that you've got to take because if you don't take it, you ain't got no hope. To pay for our sins, a price we couldn't pay. Why? Because every sin committed, every sin committed, no matter how grievous or seemingly in our eyes, minor. From the preposterously absurd huge sins to the peccadilloes. Every sin committed is committed against who? Ultimately, God. Even the grievous sins of David, as he writes his great psalm of repentance, Psalm 51, he says, against you and you only have I sinned. Every sin ever committed is committed against the eternal, holy, personal God and thusly possesses an eternal offense. Because when you sin against someone who is eternal, the offense lasts how long? as long as they are. So he comes to pay for our sins and to defeat death. Something we couldn't do. How many of you have met someone who's like, yep, I'm like, in the ground, buried, but I'm back. They haven't met someone like that either. He came to defeat death, something we couldn't do. One out of one dies. Guess what? One, of one, one out of one still dies. The wages of sin is death, is what Romans 3.23 tells us. 
What we needed, what we need is a sinless Savior who would willingly lay down his life on our behalf and who could take it up again. Hebrews talks about this at length. What we needed was a man, someone who was fully man, who perfectly kept all of the law, who by definition was righteous. By God's definition was righteous and had to be a man who perfectly kept all of that. Tempted in every way, yet without sin. Which means that he endured all the way through. But not just a man, he also had to be, he'd have to be God. Who by his eternal nature could pay a price that demanded an eternal consequence. This is the wonder of Emmanuel, God, with us. This is the wonder of the incarnation when we talk about Jesus taking flesh unto himself. He's fully God and he's fully man, truly God and truly man. You will not be able to exhaust it or ever fully understand it, but without it, we have no hope. Because the only one who could pay the price for our sins and defeat death has to be one who was fully like us and also fully God. It's the only way it could be paid. So why? So that your offense could be removed. So that your penalty could be commuted. You no longer live in fear of death because why? He has died the death that you deserved. As we walk in this sphere, we'll still experience physical death, but we'll know the promise and the hope and the truth and the joy because of his physical resurrection that when we close our eyes here, they will open in his presence because he has succeeded. There's that on that third day be raised. Why? Well, there's not only the hope of the life that is to come, but there's also the reality that because he's raised and he's gone through all of this, he suffered, he died, and on the third day was raised. Why else? To pay for our sins, to defeat death, and to prepare and equip us to bear the cross. Our Savior, when he calls us to follow him, when he bids you to come to him, it's to come into what? To come and to die. Die unto this world and live unto him. He comes to prepare us to equip, or to equip us to bear the cross, delivered from death unto life to follow him, which is what he talks about here shortly. But he did this so that what? We go back to Jeremiah, and Jeremiah, he's having a rough go of it. I mean, he's been sent to a people that are hard and that are resistant, and, and they're not really friendly towards Jeremiah. And he's a young man, and he's really struggling with this, and he's complained, he's complained to God. And God's response in Jeremiah 12, 5 says, if you've raced with men on foot, so you've been competing with them, and they've wearied you, how will you compete with horses? God's saying, I've used you so far and I've got more plans. I've got bigger plans for you. But Jeremiah, if you've raced with men on foot and they've wearied you, how will you compete with horses? And if in a safe land you are so trusting, what will you do in the thicket of Jordan? 
Jeremiah had the promise of God that he would provide him everything he needed. He would protect him. He would provide for him. Jeremiah went through some uncomfortable stuff. If you get a chance, read it's, it's, It is a longer book. But if you get a chance, read it over the next week. Jeremiah had some rough experiences, but in every one of those rough experiences, what did he know? The preservation, protection, and full present, the presence of God, providing for him through any number of different means. Well, that was Jeremiah writing as an Old Testament prophet, living as an Old Testament prophet. We live in the time where Jesus has come, and we look to the founder and the perfecter of our faith who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. That's our encouragement. That is our, that's, that's what reveals joy to us. That when we look to Christ, what do we see? If he's the founder and the perfecter, that means he's done what? Everything. From where? the beginning to the end. In Revelation, he says, I'm the Alpha and the Omega. He has established and perfected all of it. And and he did it in the midst of joy as well as suffering. Joy and sacrifice are part and parcel of the Christian life because we follow the one who knew the greatest joy and also gave the greatest sacrifice. And as he calls us and equips us and gifts us to be able to follow him, he would have us know that joy and, yes, that sacrifice. He knows it in its full breadth and its depth, and he doesn't have you walk it alone because he's walked through it. He walks and he runs He crawls, and he sits with you. And that's individually as a believer, and that's for us as a church. If we are walking, he walks with us. If we're at a place where we're running... He runs with us. He makes it. He's the one who makes us able to run. If we are so exhausted and worn out that we crawl, guess what? He crawls with us. And if we have to sit or stand, what does he do? He sits and stands with us. For he will not leave or forsake. He will not abandon. He will not leave us as orphans. Why? Because he's walked that path and he calls us to it. He's done it for us and he does it with us. He says that he must go. He must go and what he must do for you. That's who he's done it for. For everyone who will call on his name for the bride that is his. And he left nothing undone. And so as he begins to teach his disciples, he's teaching them that he must go and do this. And it's going to take a fuller shape for them. He's going to reveal it in increasing measure to them.
but in this first foretelling of his death and resurrection, he meets resistance. And once again, it's who? Peter. Peter. But we forget how tricky this the devil is, don't we? Because in Luke 4.13, after Luke's recording of the temptation of Christ, he finished it saying, and when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. What more opportune time than here? Because what's just happened? He's been confessed as who? You're the Christ. You're the son of the living God. Did you, you note know the last time that, that Satan came to tempt Christ? What did he just heard then? This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Here comes that opportune time. What's just happened? My father, once again, Satan has an issue with God, doesn't he? Because it was his father who declared as he came up from the waters of baptism, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. It's his father who has revealed this to Peter, that he is what? The son, he is the Messiah, the Christ, the son of the living God. And here comes this one who we can, we can sympathize. Peter's one of the closest of his close friends. What he's just heard is that his arguably best friend is going to what? Suffer. Die. And it says that he took him aside. He took him aside and he began to rebuke him. And if you see it as this, like, here's Peter, here's Jesus, and you've got the finger out, I think you might see it the right way. But there's also the reality that this is my friend and I don't want this to happen to my friend. And so he takes him aside and in his rebuke, He's saying this as a friend that loves him. I think there's maybe both of them there. There could be the, hey, God revealed this to me, and so now maybe God revealed this to me too. Maybe I'll hear another one of those. I don't know. But this would be a friend. But the rebuke here is to admonish or to, sh to charge sharply. He's correcting him. And that's not a position any of us want to be in when it comes to Christ. Because Christ has just revealed something true. And Peter, though he had eyes to see, there's still things that Peter's eyes have to be open to. They haven't yet been revealed to him. And Peter, as he hears this, and, and we see the response of Christ, maybe we're remembering, or maybe we need to be brought back to Proverbs 14.12, Proverbs 16.25, where Solomon, he repeats himself. He writes this one twice. There is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way to death. What seemed right to Peter? This can't possibly be. Death cannot possibly be part of the plan for this. And that way seemed right to Peter. But if Jesus had listened to Peter and said, you're right, Peter, what would have result? Death. But there's something else here, too. So there's a way that seems right to a man. And Peter said this because Peter wanted to say it. But there's also here, we see revealed this, the shamelessness and the deceitfulness and the trickiness of Satan. Who's the source of temptation for Jesus here? It's his best friend. Those who are closest. 
We've seen it before. Abraham and the voice of his wife. Doesn't seem like we're getting this kid in the right time. Here, take my servant. That's a temptation that came through who? That who's closest. And we hear it, and why? Why do we give a countenance to it? We give a countenance to it because we know that they care about us. We know that they love us. They know that they want the best for us. But sometimes, are we guilty in wanting the best and counseling for the best? Are we resisting what God's plan is? That's why we always want to be praying, asking God for wisdom and discernment. If he's placed us close to people, alongside of people, to walk alongside of them, we want God's wisdom in everything we say. Because we don't want to be found guilty of sinning against God and his plan and his path. The people who see this, who experience it, perhaps, maybe you've heard their stories, those called to the mission field, not the easy, not the easy, not there's any easy mission field, but those places that it's obviously hard. I might not see you again because the penalty for being a Christ confessor, being a Christ follower in that place, if they find you is death. And it's a parent or a grandparent or an aunt or an uncle. I don't think God's calling you to this. And yet it's been a it's been revealed consistently along the way. We can't stand in the way of God. And Peter here, that's what he's standing in the way of. Wherever it would come from. So he rebukes him. And then we get to this response. But he turned, that is Jesus, and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You're a hindrance to me. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. That's a stinging rebuke. And there's many that have struggled with Jesus' response to Peter. Jesus, that doesn't, that's not very kind. Jesus, I don't really like your tone. And, and some people even almost re- lean into the idea that, once again, Jesus sinned in this. No, he didn't. Jesus didn't sin in this at all. We've already established that if he had sinned, what wouldn't have taken place? He wouldn't have risen again on the third day because he wouldn't have been a perfect sacrifice. And again, we think about Proverbs, don't we? Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Do you think it hurt to hear his best friend say, Get behind me, Satan? You're a scandal on the one that he just said, you know, you're a rock. He just said, now you're a rock, a stone of stumbling. I'm offended. You are an offense to me. Ouch. But there's no sin here. Peter was an offense to Christ so long as he opposed his calling. And that's what he was doing here. Unbeknownst to him, 
And yet Jesus, as he responds to Peter, what we have to recognize, have any of us ever had to give a hard teaching to someone we love so they might see the error of their ways? Probably. I see some heads nodding, yes. And was it, I mean, we sometimes we look at this, do you think Jesus enjoyed this? I don't think that he necessarily enjoyed it, but was it needed? Absolutely it was needed because it was right teaching. Peter, what you're saying now is not of God, it's of man. And as long as you cling to it, this is my response. But notice, Jesus didn't say, get behind me, Satan, You're a hindrance to me. He didn't stop there, did he? And I think there's something for us to learn. How many times when we've been disappointed with someone or angry at them or upset, we just blow up, but we don't say why. We just, you're cut off. What doesn't Jesus do? Jesus declares to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You're a hindrance to me for because this is why, this is how, Peter. You are not setting your mind on things of God, but on the things of man. He doesn't leave Peter and the others wondering how they were an offense. He tells them. Remember, this is the one who has said, To what? Fix your eyes. Fix your minds. Fix your hearts on the things of God. Not the things of this world. Don't have anxiety over them. He knows what you need. Fix your eyes upon Him. What we see in Peter is our natural minds and they're bent and they're afflicted in their sinful states. There's a way that seems right to a man, but its end is death. What Jesus is calling Peter to what he calls all of his apostles to what he calls us to today if we are in him is our minds would be in and submitted to Christ that we would listen to his direction that we would listen to his way this is what Paul says in Romans 12 in Romans 12 1 and 2 He says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Your mind must be transformed. And as you present yourself as a living sacrifice, we ask that God would continue to conform our mind to his way through his word. For that's the only place that we will find what the things of God are. The world wants to put before you and daily puts before you the things of this world and what looks like the world. The world will never, will never take you to the things of God. It is only God's word that will take you to the things of God. And the humbling part for us as disciples of Christ, if you've confessed your faith in Christ and you are in him and the Spirit's within you, 
the humbling thing to us, and perhaps the frustrating part at times too, is disciples, we can be so right in one moment, right? And you know what's coming. And in the next moment, one moment be so wrong. And this is why we want to take everything back to where? Everything back to the Word of God. For our own sake? For the sake of those that God's placed us along, alongside? That our words would be true? That they would be faithful? That when we're found in error, that we're loved enough by those that walk alongside of us to say, hey, have you really examined that? Have you taken that back to the Word and submitted it fully? Because it seems like it might be a little bit off. Oh, no, that's, that's uncomfortable. Well, it was uncomfortable to get called Satan in a hindrance. Why did Jesus do that? He loved Peter. He knew what he was going to do within and through Peter and the rest of them. And what is he doing? Purifying his bride. Why has he put us next to each other? Gentlemen, if you're uncomfortable with it, I don't care. It's what we're called in Scripture. We are part of the bride of Christ. And what is he doing? He's purifying. So that that bride would be without what? Spot or blemish. Without wrinkle. That there would be no more tears. That there would be no more brokenness or hurt. And we won't arrive there here. But we will be in progress here. That we would know the full wonder, the wonder of His presence and His grace. We can be so right one moment and so wrong the next. And to avoid that mistake, we should be, James tells us, quick to hear, slow to speak, and eager to set our minds on the things of God, which are revealed in God's Word. And we're going to have to cut it right there because we don't have enough time to walk through the rest of the marks of a disciple this morning. So we leave you on a cliffhanger, but we leave you on the wonder of what Christ was calling Peter, his apostles, and us too. Let us desire to not be a stumbling block. That sounds a lot like Paul later on, right? that we wouldn't cause others to stumble. Let us hear the word of the Lord and rejoice in it, even if what it has is is hard. What Jesus was going to do is hard, make no mistake. It wasn't an easy job that he'd been given. And what he's called us into isn't easy, but it's good because it follows him. And let us desire... Let us desire to be wise from the mouth of God and not in any other manner. Let us desire the wisdom of God, which according to the world is what? Foolishness. Let us desire the weakness of God because the weakness of God is strength. Let us desire that he would be as merciful to us as he was to Peter, even if it means hearing 
those difficult and those hard, but those loving words that wound in order to what? To heal, to strengthen. Because he is the one, he didn't snuff out this faintly burning wick that was Peter. He didn't break that bruised reed. He spoke clearly, he spoke directly, and yes, it was a hard thing to hear, but it was what? It was something that would build to take that faintly smoking wick and to burn, build it up into a light, a fire that burns in the eyes of the world, that they would see the truth, that the church would be built, that we would receive him as he is, and not according to the wicked designs of men, but the gracious and merciful designs of God. And next week, we'll look at taking up your cross. <laughs>